very warm, warm welcome to uh, all this morning. We wish you a blessed Christmas from Living Your Bible Church. You've heard this greetings already, but some of you have come in late, so we give you a special welcome. Uh, and if you visit uh, for the first time, uh, we uh, would like to meet you after the service and just get some details from you. If you're a return visitor, uh, praise the Lord for coming back. And we just trust this morning as you listen to God's word that you will indeed be aware that you are hearing God's word being preached faithfully. Um, this morning, uh, I, I'm not my time myself yet. I'll claim this time back, as they say, in, this, in the house. But I, I come from a church where when things happen in a sequence very quickly, you say there's a theme taking place. And <laughs> some of the, my brothers here come from the same church, they know what I mean. But um, this morning, the theme is indeed <laughs> around Christmas, but from the opening reading this morning and the prayer that Denver gave and the comments that, that, that Chanton made, they're all just kind of tying together. Not just generally, but in a very specific way. And I trust as I open God's word to you this morning that you may see that those things are all very relevant to the sermon this morning. So having said all of that, uh, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter, chapter 1. Uh, we'll start reading from verse 18. Remember a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that we are able to come together in this way this morning just to remember your son. And Lord, we know that we remember him every day in our lives. We know that those who belong to him continually have him in our thoughts and in our heart. And as we walk day by day, he, he fills our lives. But this is a special day. And this is a day when the world has come together to remember your son. And we know that in many, in many instances, in many ways, in many cases, Lord, they have no true knowledge of him as their savior, nor do they have a true knowledge of what Christmas means. And so we thank you that we are able to take up your word and learn from that. And we trust and pray, Lord, that by the time that we leave these doors this morning, that those who had a, a small understanding may have a deeper one. And those who do not know him as Savior may have found him as Savior today. We pray for the blessing upon the reading of your word. We pray you may bless, bless both speak and hearers alike, and that you may indeed be glorified by what we do and say this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen. The title for my sermon this morning is The Full Meaning of Christmas. Uh, sounds a little vague, but... I think there's two areas where I'd like to be able to take us through this morning and just open our understanding around uh, the fullness of Christmas. In one sense, around the contextual uh, setting of the first Christmas uh, morning. And in another sense, to see that, as has already been said, Christmas doesn't stand alone. Christmas is part of God's redemptive work. And so we will see this morning how we can go through that and uh, trust that by God's grace you will have a better understanding of why we see Christmas as special, but not special in any other part of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. The United Nations estimates that today over 385,000 babies will be born into this world today. Babies are being born at the rate of five every second. It's astounding. 
I was looking at it this morning on a little clock rolling over, and as I'm watching it, I'm watching these numbers roll, and that means every second since I spoke to you, 10 babies have been born. 385,000 babies are born into the world every single day. This means that by the end of the sermon, another 15,000 babies would have been born, who weren't here an hour ago. There was a time when it would have been normal to expect that those babies who'd been born into a stable family where the mother and father was married to each other and where the babies would have a pretty normal life, raised in a stable family. It was not the norm to have babies born into families where the mother and father are not married. Not anymore. Conception of life has become cheap in our modern culture. The number of children worldwide born into homes where the parents are not married have reached an average of 50% this year, according to the World Population Review. That means that for every one baby born to a married family is one born out of wedlock. Over 1,000 uh, of 192,000 babies born today will be born either to unmarried parents or to single mothers. That's sad. That's disconcerting. Data shows that 51.3% of live births in the UK were not to married couples. For the first time since 1845, babies born to unmarried parents outstripped those born to married parents. In response to that specific statistic from the Telegraph, a feminist writes in The Guardian, no one actually cares. No one actually cares. Marriage is simply not as much a priority anymore. Marriage has been sacrificed on the altar of preferences, expediency, comfort, wealth, and everything else. And not only are babies being born to unmarried parents becoming the norm, but those parents who don't want those babies abort them. So babies are in for a raw deal. Well, marriage was very much a priority in the days when Jesus was born. Not only was it a priority, it was a carefully crafted process. Nothing was left to chance. The marriage was not an agreement between two individuals. Today, you look around, you visit places, you see someone who catches your eye, and hopefully she smiles you at the right time, and boom, your heart flutters, a little hearts appear in your side vision, and before you know it, you're in love, and you've chosen a, a, a woman for yourself, and hopefully she wants you for a man. And so we go to life in the modern Western world, choosing our spouses, and sometimes we make bad choices, we have no one else to blame but ourselves. So that is how it is today, but it wasn't the day, that when the day of Jesus Christ. In the ancient Near East, marriages were an arranged affair between two families. The marriage process uh, included three phases. The first way, phase was what I'd call for your benefit matchmaking. You all have heard that song uh, sung in Fiddle on the Roof, matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Well, that was a professional matchmaker uh, trying to find partners in the community. But in the days of Jesus Christ when he was born, uh, there was matchmaking. The father of the, of the prospective couple would negotiate everything, including the choice of a husband and the wife. And this was often done when the couple were still children, still too young to marry. 
And they married at a very young age. I'll tell that a little later on. But that choice of who your wife was going to be was not yours. You took the wife your father chose for you. The husband you wanted to have would have been the one, maybe not the what, one that your father chose for you, but you would pick the one he chose for you. So the fathers chose who your spouse would be. And you would marry them. The second phase of that process was called the betrothal. This was a public affair. And everyone in the community would either be invited or would certainly know about it. There was full transparency as to who was being married in the community. And the couple that married could not be separated except for adultery. And that only by a formal process of divorce. They could not engage in sexual intercourse. They were deemed to be a couple married and partners. But the one thing they could not indulge in was sexual intercourse. The betrothal period lasted about 12 months, during which the husband prepared a room in his father's house to eventually receive his bride. And the betrothed wife would be at her home preparing things for her home that she'd set up with her husband, including preparing lamps and keeping them ready because the husband had just come in the middle of the night when his father sent him, and she had to be ready and have a lamp to take her home to her father's house. So those things, when you hear those, you really think about some parables, right? And saying to the Lord Jesus Christ, in my father's house, in many mansions, John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. Um, that's in the background of that, that whole wedding, wedding structure. The parable of the, of, of, the, of the maidens, the virgins with their lamps, that's based on that same structure. So it was a very structured process. And the betrothal took account of all of that. Only the father of the husband could call an end to the betrothal period. He decided when they would finally marry. <laughs> I don't know if I want to be married in those days. I think my father and I would have had many, many fights. But first matchmaking, then betrothal. And at the end of the betrothal period, phase three took place. It was the wedding. It was on this wedding night that the couple who would consummate their marriage as engaged in their conjugal rights. And they would physically and officially and formally and in every sense become husband and wife. So this is a very formal structure in the, uh, in the ancient Near East. It's a very formal and uh, serious structure uh, within the Jewish community. And if it was broken in any way at any step, there were consequences. So with all of that, you can now look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be the child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, 
and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This morning I will want to divide my sermon up into three sections. The first part will be called the scandal of Christmas. The second part will be the significance of Christmas, and we'll close briefly with a section titled The Sovereignty of Christmas, The Scandal of Christmas. God is the divine author of the book. This book has been written by God. He is the divine author of this book. He inspired chosen men what to write. He chose the words that had to be put in the original autographs. God was in total control of everything that went into the Holy Scriptures. So he could have chosen how things were recorded so they could become more acceptable to sensitive consciences. He could have left out parts of the scriptures that we find offensive, perhaps in a, in a modern sense. There are some things that he could have said, uh, and, or rather left out, that would have made people less likely to uh, accuse his son of things. So God had control over what went into the scriptures. And when you look at the, the, the stark clarity of everything, things that's written in the scriptures, whether it's good things that are joyous or whether the things that are, are really bad and things we wish we didn't have to read, God puts them there because he puts them there for a reason. He doesn't avoid what's uncomfortable for you and me just so that you and I don't have to be uncomfortable. His word has been inspired so that you and I will realize that he's a God who's a holy God a just God, a God who is in control of all things, and a God has a purpose that he rolled out through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we find in the Gospel according to Matthew an account of a young virgin girl. A girl was betrothed to an upright and just man. And she's displaying evidence of being pregnant. And she's pregnant, pregnant by someone other than the man to whom she's betrothed. But this time, Mary is showing signs that she's carrying a baby. And in the close in the Jewish community, where everyone knew everyone else, this would have been scandalous. Everybody saw it. Everybody knew it. Tongues would have been talking. And indeed, Mary would not have been able to escape the ridicule and the scandal that was going around ahead. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. That means that she was showing her pregnancy. That means that it was obvious that this young woman was with child. And we are told by Matthew from the Holy Spirit. We the benefit of scripture and history, and we know that this is the work of the Holy Spirit. But in the local community of Nazareth, they never had that editorial from Matthew. All they saw was Mary, a young girl, from the, from, the, from the home of Eli, with a swelling belly. She'd have been about four months at this time, if we take account that she's been with Elizabeth about three months, and they've seen her as, an un, as a pregnant, unmarried girl. Just let the impact of that sink in as you think of what we just said about the structure of the, the wedding and the marriage and how families were involved and how things were kept in such a way that nothing could go wrong as, long, as far as they could 
as far as they could arrange things. The fathers, Heli and Jacob, would have been incensed. Jacob had agreed that Mary was a suitable wife for his son and had paid the appropriate dowry to her father, Heli. For Jacob, there were both social and financial consequences. This man would have been incensed. This man would have been upset in a way which we can't even describe. He had chosen this young woman who had appeared to be an upright, godly girl for his son, and now she's pregnant, and his son is not responsible. And Heli, who had always known his daughter to be an upright and godly-fearing girl, he would have to face family and friends in the community, and he'd be left embarrassed. There's a time when, certainly my, um, growing up in my life, uh, when I was much younger, when if this happened, uh, and it happened at times in families, you found that suddenly a cousin or a friend's daughter or a friend has gone and disappeared. And she's gone and you'll hear she's visiting a family member somewhere out of your reach. And it wouldn't be long before tongues are wagging. And you know that she's been sent away from home so the people around her would not see she's actually pregnant. It happened. And people who would be ashamed of their daughters uh, growing up in the local community, uh, showing that, knowing that she wasn't married. Now, that's no longer the case. But nonetheless, that was so once upon a time. And this was not open to Mary. She could not be shipped off somewhere and be uh, pregnant and be in confinement and deliver uh, in a secret way. Not only could she not afford it, but it wasn't part of God's plan. And that's the important part. Keep us in mind that all of this is happening under the full control of a sovereign, holy, righteous God. This may seem to be uh, something God could have avoided uh, in that it is sounds so embarrassing. This was God's plan. And there's a reason for this plan. She was betrothed to be married and now she's pregnant and not by Joseph. Verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. No one was more taken aback or more devastated by Mary's pregnancy than Joseph himself. This man must have been broken. He knows that he's not responsible for Mary's pregnancy. He could only think the unthinkable. She's been unfaithful. And that's the result. The impact, the impact on Joseph was horrendous. People were waiting for the moment that Joseph's father would tell him the time was right for him to fetch his bride. They were expecting to celebrate a wedding feast, and now his betrothed bride was pregnant and showing it. Joseph was left to pick up whatever was left of the reputation of the two families. He only had one option open to him. As far as he could see, there was divorce. This would mark Mary as an adulterous woman, but he was prepared to do this in a discreet way, as discreetly as possible, so as not to add to Mary's shame. He had a right to do it publicly. Uh, this could have gone many ways, depending how orthodox some of the people were in the, in the community. But Joseph being a just man, and despite feeling that he was the one who was offended, that Mary had betrayed him, he still seeks to be divorced in a quiet way. He plans for a peaceful married life with his faithful wife laying tatters. All those plans are gone. His, rep his reputation in the community was at risk. His family faced ridicule. But more to think about than just about himself. 
Let us think about both families, and he's thinking about Mary. Being a man of honor, a just man, he was determined to not add to Mary's shame. And so he resolved to divorce her quietly. A private affair with the minimum amount of required witnesses, quietly, quickly, so that this could just go away, disappear, and he could get on with his life and hopefully not have lost his reputation to the degree he could not find another wife. <clears throat> that was his plan. Divorce Mary, move on, and let's see if we can recover from the embarrassment in Nazareth. But that was not God's plan for Joseph. He had a plan. God's plan was different. The significance of Christmas. On the background of the scandal of Christmas, what happened in Nazareth 2,000 years ago, let's look at the significance of Christmas. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. As Joseph is falling asleep, the situation Mary finds herself in is filling his thoughts, and it's turning around in his mind. He's, he's, he's restless. Probably the worst time to be considering life-changing decisions is this, laying on your bed at night. It's the worst time to be thinking about serious things or serious implications. But Joseph couldn't help himself. These thoughts were invading his mind. And he was turning them around in his mind, trying to make some sense of it. But God intervenes by sending an angel of the Lord that appears to him in a dream. And the angel says several things to Joseph. Several significant things. Number one, he says, Joseph, son of David. That, in of itself, is highly significant. Joseph, son of David. This title, Son of David, appears about 16 times in the New Testament. And in 15 of those times, it all it relates either to Jesus Christ, as people address him as Son of David, 14 times. Twice he uses that title, Son of David, as he interrogates the people around him as to who do they say the Messiah is. So 15 of the 16 times, it's linked to Jesus Christ or the Messiah. Once and only once is that term used of someone other than Jesus Christ. And it's here, Joseph, son of David. You wonder why? Why would why there be a change in something which was already set, already a pattern was established? Why is a change in this case and only this case? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Read just the opening line of Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Matthew starts right at the beginning of his epistle, identifying who Jesus is. The son of David, the son of Abraham. But in this book, where Jesus is king, the son of David is a significant title. Luke uses this title twice about Jesus. Mark uses it twice. Matthew uses it nine times. Jesus, the son of David. It is significant because the whole point about what's going to happen in Nazareth uh, was going to be the beginning of the, of the earthly life of the one, the son of David, would ultimately sit upon the throne of his father, David. And so as the angel speaks to Joseph, he really gets Joseph's mind right that his marriage to Mary is significant. It cannot be broken. 
He cannot divorce her. He cannot leave her because he needs to make sure that the son who he will father, who is the son of David, will ascend the throne of David legitimately. And that throne of David could only be ascended by one who was in the legal line. And Joseph was in that line. Joseph, through Solomon, had legal right to the throne of David, at least in the sense of the genealogy. And so this son of David, Joseph, is going to be the father of the greatest son of David, Jesus, and ensure that by remaining married to Mary, Jesus would have rightful access to the throne of David as a son of David because of his link to his father, Joseph, who also is, in a sense that the angel called him, a son of David. This marriage has to go on. Whether he's a father or not is of no consequence to him or to, or, or to anyone else. God has a plan. Joseph will be Jesus' father. Jesus will ascend the throne of David as a son of David, and that will change. Nothing will change that. Secondly, the angel says to Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, even as pregnant as she is. The angel of the Lord gives Joseph a word of assurance. Joseph is being commanded not to hesitate in taking Mary as his wife. At this point, he's made up his mind, but it seems to be there may be hesitation. I'm not sure what is taking place in Joseph's mind. We are told. We can only assume and surmise. But the angel says to Joseph, do not hesitate to take Mary as your wife. At this point, Joseph has decided to divorce Mary, but the angel of the Lord says, don't do that. Do not hesitate to take Mary as, as your wife for a very specific reason. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And Joseph is given an insight that no one else had in Nazareth at that, at that time except perhaps Mary. This was a divine suspension of the human agency in conception being made bare to Joseph. Never before and never since has a, has a young girl or woman fallen pregnant without the intervention of a man. This was the only case and the only time that a woman fell pregnant and a man, a human man, was not involved. The Holy Spirit caused Mary to conceive and bear a child. And that child, that son of David, was called Jesus. In fact, he says uh, to Joseph in verse 21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. This is a total change for Joseph. Remember, Joseph was wanting to quietly divorce Mary and just move away. But now, the angel is commanding him to be intricately and significantly involved in the life of this baby. He would be responsible for giving the baby a name, the name of Jesus. In Luke, we are told, as the angel speaks to Mary, she's also given that instruction. But in Matthew, Matthew's case, where we deal with Joseph as the son of David, in this gospel, which is about the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ, Joseph is told, this may not be your son, you may not be the child's father, but you will name him, and his name will be Jesus. And even though Joseph had no part in the conception of Jesus, he still had a significant role to play in the life of Jesus. Whereas Mary would birth the baby, Joseph was given the responsibility of naming the baby. Whereas Mary was his natural link to the human race, Joseph was his legal link to the Davidic throne. And so this marriage had to take place. God had ordained it so, it would happen, 
and nothing would prevent these two from being married. Understand clearly, Joseph lives with Mary in Nazareth, and she's continually growing uh, in her belly. He doesn't marry her. In fact, it says in Luke that when they go to uh, Jerusalem to be counted, or the census, she's still his betrothed. And at that time, she's nine months pregnant. She's, she's heavy with pregnancy. And they're barely there when she gives birth. And Joseph lives through the entire nine months. Everybody knowing he's betrothed but not married, and this child is growing in Mary's womb. Joseph had become significantly involved in the life of the baby still to be born. The baby will be born into a poor working-class Galilean family. Even though his mother was a member of the royal, royal line back to King David, to the David's son Nathan, and even though his father Joseph could trace his lineage back to King David through David's son Solomon, this was still a poor family from a relatively insignificant town called Nazareth. And when the time came for this young teenage girl to give birth to a baby, her husband Joseph would be the one to name him Jesus, Yeshua, Yahweh, Savior. That's the meaning of his name. His name is significant. That name was indeed common. Yeshua, Joseph, um, rather Joshua, Jesus, as we, as we have interpreted, was a common name. But this would be the first time a boy would bear this name and be, and be worthy of the name. Every other boy who bore the name George simply as a name with a meaning. This boy, this one born to Mary and Joseph, would have the right to bear that name fully in every sense. Well, he is Jesus, the one who saves his people from his sin. Joseph and Mary did not have the liberty of choosing a name for their baby. The angel specifies the name to be given. His name will be Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. And after quoting what the angel has said to Joseph, Matthew then swings back to his narrative in verse, 20, verse 22 and sums up all that has just been recorded in verses 18 to 21. By quoting the prophet Isaiah, where he says this in verse 22, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This prophecy, this prophecy is from Isaiah 7.14, we read it this morning. It's been referred to from many times in many, in many ways. Made 700 years before the birth of Jesus. 700 years before a young virgin girl who conceived and bear the son. The amount of ink and paper and time that has been used debating whether Isaiah is talking about a young girl or a virgin is, is mind-boggling. Books, tomes, volumes have been written as is this uh, a young girl, is the virgin, and this goes back and forth and back and forth. All we're saying this morning is that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew takes the words of Isaiah and links it directly to a young virgin from Nazareth and the baby Jesus. Matthew is saying unequivocally that the 700-year prophecy is finally fulfilled with the conception and birth of Jesus. Mary is the virgin of Isaiah 7.14, and Jesus, conceived in her by the Holy Spirit, is the son of Isaiah 7.14. But while they are discussing that, they sometimes lose sight of the more significant part of that verse. What I've said now about the virgin birth and the child being born is significant, but it is made more meaningful when we see how that is completed. The significant name given to the son is important. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the significance of Christmas, that God has come to be 
with us. Unto us from on high, reaching down into the deepest night, to the world hope has come, in the dark the light of life has dawned. What a mystery. Oh, what love. Oh, how can it be that heaven has come to us? The current superficial postmodern society which we find ourselves in has lost the meaning and the significance of Christmas. They use biblical texts on their cards, they sing Christian hymns in their churches, but they, they make Christmas all about themselves and not about Christ. It's all about eating and drinking and extravagant gifts and clothes, but they've taken the Christ out of Christmas. They missed the very point of the incarnation of the Son of God, that God came to dwell with men. But for the significance of Christmas, they first have to believe that the Bible is true. People will refuse to see the Christ in Christmas as long as they deny this Bible, this word, as the word of God. They have to believe that God is the God of the Bible, which they do not. And then they have to believe that Jesus is not just the son of Mary, but as the word proclaims through many prophecies and through the writings in the New Testament, that he is the son of God. God came to dwell with us. God with us. In John chapter 14, Jesus is conversing with his disciples and he's he's spending time with them before his crucifixion. And in chapter 6, they ask him, show us the Father. As well in John chapter 14, verse 6, uh, he responds to that request, shows the Father, and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do not know him and have, and have seen him. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me, has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not know that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me, he he does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe me on the account of the works themselves. The whole purpose of Christmas was that. A God who could not be seen, could be seen when Philip and Thomas looked on him. A God who could not be touched, could be touched when they felt his hands. John 1 John 1 tells us that, whom we have seen, whom we have heard, whom we have touched. He was touchable as Jesus, whereas as a son of God, God the Son in eternity, he was untouchable. A God who could not die was able to die when Jesus, who was God with man, died on the cross. By Jesus coming to earth, God became a tangible reality in the experience of the human life. Men saw him and they saw God. Men touched him and they touched God. Men listened to him and they listened to God. Men saw him doing miracles and they saw the power of God. Men ridiculed him and they blasphemed God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 says this, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. That's why he came. That's the significance of Christmas, that God could come to earth in the person of his son, and ultimately that son to die on Calvary's cross, and still, in all of that, he remains God the Son. 
never relinquishing his, his, his sonship, never relinquishing his deity, never giving up on his, on his glory. Though it was veiled, he remains God even on the cross. And all that the angel had said to Joseph had an immediate effect on him. Joseph was stunned and he, and he reacted. He obeyed immediately. This was the, 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 the character, the integrity of this man, a just man, a man who believed in God. Joseph was in all likelihood one of those Old Testament believers. Uh, we, would, we, would, we, would, we would not be wrong to assume that God would choose a father and a mother for his son who would be godly people. And so Joseph, being the just man, heard the angel and responded. No questions, no, no discussion, no argument. He just obeyed. When, verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, of Matthew chapter 1, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. But that's not the end of the Christmas story. That's where most of us end the Christmas story. We hear that, the children sing their final carol, and we all go home to Christmas pies, Christmas pudding, big lunches, and we forget about the Christ of Christmas. This is just the beginning. The birth of the Lord Jesus is not a standalone event. It's part of a Christological quartet. It doesn't stand alone. And here are the four parts of the quartet, and now I'm going to go through quite quickly, and maybe just take you to some verses. Don't turn there. I will read them to you, and just listen as these verses are read. Now, this Christmas story is part of a larger story, which is known as the gospel story, the story of redemption. Number one, the first part, the first part of this Christological quartet, he stepped out of eternity into time. He was born. John chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That talks about the beginning of, before anything existed, He was there. The eternal uh, Son of God, like God in every sense. That was in the beginning, verse 11. He came unto His own, and His own people did not receive Him. Verse 14, and that word, which was in the beginning, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He stepped out of eternity into time. Unto us, meek and mild, God eternal, born a helpless child, set aside heaven's throne, veiled in weakness, came unto his own. What a mystery. Oh, what love. Oh, how can it be that heaven has come to us? Number two, the second part of that Christological quartet, he was born to die. He was born with a specific purpose of dying for a very good reason. While on earth he lived a perfect, sinless, holy life, fully dedicated to fulfilling the will of his father, even to the point of death. In fact, his death was the purpose of his coming. Remember his name. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And in order to save his people from, the, from, his people from their sins, required that he die for their sins. So embedded within the very name that he was given at his birth was his death. Right when he was given that name, focused in the mind of God was his death, born to die. And that work of salvation was accomplished through him freely giving himself up as an offering for sin. Our sin, my sin and your sin. Philippians chapter 2, speaking about Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. He could not have died on a cross if he wasn't found in human form. He could not have been found in human form to die on the cross if he was not born a babe in Bethlehem. He would not be born a babe in Bethlehem so that he could die on the cross at Calvary if God did not plan it this way. This was God's plan. It would not change. The significance of Christmas is not only about the birth of the baby Jesus, it is instinctively linked to the dying of the man Jesus. The cause of that death was your sin and mine. He died the death that you and I are not qualified to die. We will die. We will die in sin. We will die because of sin. But we are not qualified to die for our own sin. Only Jesus Christ, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, is qualified to die so that your sins could be judged in Him and you could be receive the righteousness of Him through the grace of God. He died so that you and I did not have to die and be separated from God for all eternity. He suffered so that you and I may have peace. He died so that you and I would not have to pay the price for our sin. Isaiah 53, the same prophet who wrote Isaiah 7, Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. None of us escape. All, that includes every single person born on the face of the earth, except Jesus Christ. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's the lamb who was given, slain for our pardon. He's promised his peace for those who believe. So come though you have nothing. Come. He is the offering. Come. See what your God has done. Number three. He rose from the dead. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. We cannot separate the Christmas morning story from the Easter Sunday story. Those two are part of the same story. We try to remember Christmas as a little babe, and then we want to be very morbid and solemn and remember Christ in the, in the tomb as a man. Those two are parts of the same story. They're really bookends of the physical human life of the Lord Jesus Christ as a man. He was born as a babe, lived as a man, died as a man, and when he rose from the grave, he was a glorified man. And so we cannot separate the Christmas story from the East story. There is only one story to tell. The story about our Savior, about our Lord. It's the gospel story. In Acts chapter 2, that tremendous um, uh, uh, part in the New Testament where the church is being birthed, where the Holy Spirit is coming upon those who are saved and giving them gifts, Peter is speaking and he says to the Israelites around him who are being confounded and confused what's happening. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. He died, 
Not because he died, not because he was a sinner, he died to vanquish sin. And he had power over his life, he had power over his death. He had power to lay down his life and take his life up again. And you know what was the response when they heard that? What shall we do? What shall we do? And Jesus says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. His name will be called Jesus to forgive his people for their sins. If the Christmas story and the Easter story do not drive you to your knees in repentance, then you've missed the significance of Christmas. For the Christmas story is the gospel story, the good news of salvation. We shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Up from the grave he arose, with a mighty triumph for his foes, he arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever, and with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. We tend to take certain aspects of Jesus' life and then we remember them in an isolated way. We compartmentalize the life of Jesus. He doesn't. He has a full life and the fullness of his life was to work the work of redemption so that you and I could have eternal life. That was not the plan of salvation to have his life compartmentalized. Every aspect is linked with the others. If Jesus fails in one area, he fails in all. And that would mean he was not God. And that would mean that we would be eternally doomed to everlasting punishment. If he failed in one, he failed in all. Number four, he's coming back again. And that's part of the Christmas story. He's coming back again. In Acts chapter 1, and I'm not going to read the whole portion, uh, again, um, the, 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 the disciples, and they are finally seeing the Lord for the last time. And as he goes into heaven, uh, the angels say to them, uh, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken from you into heaven, will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Notice the name that, uh, that the angels use. This Jesus, not the Lord Jesus Christ, which he was entitled to, not the Son of God, which he was entitled to, but this Jesus. This Jesus, the name that links him to salvation, is a name that is used. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. The story about the Savior is, is not a closed book. The story about Christmas is not a closed book. He came as a baby in Bethlehem. He lived a perfect life. He died a horrendous death. He rose victorious from the grave and then ascended to his Father in heaven. He went away, but not to stay. He's coming back again. Eternal life is not for the year and now only. The term, eternal life that we are promised in Jesus Christ will carry us through into glory, into eternity, and we will never be parted from him again. Therefore, he must come back to take us to be with him forever. That is the blessed hope of every believer. That is the fourth, fourth leg of this Christological quartet. It's coming back again. And so we say together, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Finally, the sovereignty of Christmas. The sovereignty of Christmas. I'm not referring here to the word sovereignty as we so often uh, use it. And I know how we use it, and it's correct. And indeed, uh, that sense of God's sovereignty um, does encompass what I'm about to say. But there's a very specific way in relation to his birth as the son of David, that sovereignty uh, applies to him. <clears throat> I'm thinking of the way that King Charles III, but in our lifetime, there's going to be a king crowned in the UK. Well, okay, it didn't happen for the last 70-odd years. But very soon, 
uh, next year, King Charles ascends, has, who has ascended the British throne, will be, will be declared the sovereign in place of his mother, the late queen. King Charles will become the sovereign of the entire United Kingdom. He's been waiting in the wings for 70 years and finally takes up his place on the throne as a sovereign and as a king. There's a sovereign of greater stature who patiently waits to take his rightful place on the throne of greater glory, the throne of David. <clears throat> 1 Timothy 6 verse 14 says this, Our Lord Jesus Christ, who, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, he or who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That's where the baby born in Bethlehem will eventually end up, on the throne of his father David, David's greatest son, sitting on the throne and ruling with equity and power and justice. And no one, no one will be doing wrong because when wrong is done, he will judge. And when right is done, he'll be glorified. Earthly rulers come and go. Some stay longer than others, but eventually they all die and relinquish their hold on power and glory but not Jesus. Born into a working class family, a poor family, a family so poor, they could only afford to offer two pigeons when he was offered for dedication. They couldn't afford a lamb. They were so poor. They gave the offering of the poor. This Jesus wanted to take up his rightful place on David's throne, and he will reign <coughs> forever. The prophet Isaiah draws a direct link between his birth and his reign. We're not guessing this. We're not trying to suck and have a thumbs up. Prophet Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes a direct link between his birth, his coming into the world as God, and his reign. Isaiah 9, verse 6. <clears throat> For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Charles will die. Other kings will die. Of this king, of his rule, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it <coughs> with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's a sure thing. It's a done deal. It's confirmed, still to happen, but done. It's, you can write your name on that and post it. It is done, it will happen. The time we don't know, but we know that in God's time, in his own plans, and as his decree unfolds, this will happen. And Jesus will come. He'll come with his own. He'll come with his bride. The bride who had come to fetch at the rapture will now come with him as his bride and reign with him for a thousand years as he reigns on his throne. And he will reign in equity and justice and peace. <clears throat> that's the story of Christmas that's the full story of Christmas I've given you the background in which he was born a background which some would consider to be sordid and difficult to understand that was how he was born born to many and perceived as an illegitimate child in fact that may well be what has been said by him in John when the Pharisees say to him we are not illegitimate children it's not clear but it's a very strong possibility he was, his, his birth was known to be of, from a mother who was pregnant before she was married to his father. And all of that is at the back of Christmas. And yet we 
benefit from the glorious truth of Christmas that God came to be with us. So as I close, I leave you with a couple of questions. Every year we go to this, and every year we listen to Christmas, and every year we go to, go to carol services, and every year we uh, take time out to sit under the gospel, or rather under the preaching of the word as we go through nativity scenes. But you can't keep doing this and not do something about it. You can't keep doing this over and hope that somehow, maybe, God will just save you. You are required to respond to the Christmas message. You're required to do something with this Christmas child, this baby Jesus. That's what happened in Acts. After Peter expounded them about this one who was the Savior, they said, what must we do? There was a response. And there was only one answer to that request, that, 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 that desperate cry, repent and believe. Do you know Jesus as more than just a baby in a manger? Is that all he is to you? Do you know him more intimately than just once a year at Easter? When he comes back, is he coming to take you to be with him? Or is he coming to judge? The Christmas story is a real story. It's a historic event. It's not a myth. It's not a thing of our imagination. The Christ of Christmas is the real man. The Son of God, God the Son, who died that you and I may have eternal life. He's also the Prince of Peace. There's also the Lamb who can be wrathful. And the day to dawn is going to judge this world. And all those who are not part of his family, part of his church, will be judged. We leave you with this thought at Christmas. We wish you a blessed Christmas. We wish you well, but we pray that you do not forget to think about the person who you are celebrating today, the Christ of Christmas, and think of how he has impacted your life. And if he hasn't, make this a Christmas you become a child of God for his name's sake. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious truth that God came to dwell with men. Father, if you had not come to dwell with us, we would not have been saved. If Christ had not made himself known to us, we would not have known redemption. If he had not died for us, we would never have been reconciled to you. We thank you for the baby born in Bethlehem's manger died on the cross of Calvary, was raised in power from the tomb, and who comes to take us home soon. We give you our thanks in his name and for his sake alone. Amen.